the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, the 27th of June already. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we'll hear from Amy Wolf about a project she designed just out of concern for her community. And we'll talk with Alex McFarland. He's a religion and culture expert, author, radio host on voting with integrity, conscience, and conviction. I had the opportunity to serve with him this past weekend at the Shared Hope Network and uh, got to know him a little bit. Really very impressed with this uh, young apologist. So he'll be joining us later in the five o'clock hour. First, taking a look at some of the day's headlines. The first primary debate of the 2020 presidential election season saw cracks of daylight emerge in a Democratic field that has largely played to the progressive base, with the candidates clashing sharply over controversial policies like Medicare for All and calls to decriminalize illegal border crossings while taking ample shots at President Trump in the process. While staking out the left flank of the party uh, last night in Miami were Senator Elizabeth Warren, the highest polling candidate in the first debate batch, uh, the long shot Bill de Blasio, the New York City mayor. Uh, They were the only candidates to raise their hands when asked who's willing to give up their private health insurance for a government option. Well, Warren uh, went on to staunchly defend 2020 rival Senator Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan. Of course, Bernie Sanders was not on the stage last night. He'll be on the stage tonight, NBC, 6 o'clock p.m. Beto O'Rourke, the one-time media darling in the crowded Democratic field who was, uh, has watched his poll numbers wilt in recent months, uh, looked to regain some of his lost momentum last night. While he was among a handful of candidates who gave some responses in Spanish, he repeatedly found himself on the receiving end of swipes from rivals, especially former Housing Secretary Julian Castro. Among the candidates looking for breakout moments, and that was a challenge for each of the ten, Castro may have come to come the closest, rather, with his uh, controversial call for the decriminalization of illegal border crossings, challenging his fellow presidential hopefuls to agree to repeal the section of the Immigration and Nationality Act uh, that applies. He called out O'Rourke by name for not supporting his proposal, saying, I think you should do your homework on this issue. It was a testy moment. If you did your homework, he went on to say on the issue, uh, you would know that we should repeal this section. End quote. While discussing the heartbreaking photo that emerged this week of a migrant father and toddler daughter who drowned trying to cross the Rio Grande, Castro said it should Well, I'll use my own way of putting it, make people very upset. President Trump, who was on his way to Osaka, Japan, for the G20 summit, watched at least the first half hour of the debate on Wednesday, tweeting a one-word verdict of the event, boring. He later swiped at NBC News and MSNBC for uh, technical difficulties that marred part of the telecast. Despite their uh, differences on major issues, the candidates, especially Warren, a rally to downplay economic successes and growth under the Trump administration. It's doing great for a thinner and thinner slice at the top, Warren said, of the economy. The Trump campaign and the Republican National Committee 
Uh, Their rapid response team, though, sent email blasts and tweets fact-checking and defending the president's economic record and the creation of six million jobs since Election Day 2016. Well, the second round of the first Democratic primary debate will take place in Miami tonight. We'll feature the current frontrunner, former Vice President Joe Biden, U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders, among others. They'll be on the same stage. The debate will also include these eight candidates, U.S. Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, U.S. Senators Kirsten Gillibrand of New York and Kamala Harris of California, Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, U.S. Representative Eric Swalwell of California, author Marianne Williamson, and businessman Andrew Yang. Now, many are expecting that Andrew Yang will uh, make quite a splash. He's very little known. He was well known enough to make it to the debate stage, but uh, some are suggesting even on the Republican side that he will be one to watch. Well, before leaving for the G20 summit, President Trump, in an exclusive interview with Fox Business Maria Bartiromo on Wednesday, vowed to impose additional tariffs on China if a trade deal is not reached. When tariffs go in on uh, or on in China, we're talking uh, we're taking in billions rather and billions of dollars. The president said we never took in 10 cents. Now you have another three hundred and twenty five billion dollars that I haven't taxed yet. It's uh, right for taxing for putting tariffs on. Trump is expected to meet with the Chinese president Xi Jinping on Saturday to discuss trade between the world's two largest economies. The result could have broad implications for the markets, for good or ill, and the global economy. And although it's possible to reach a good deal, Trump said his plan B may include a 10% tariff on the remaining $600 billion worth of Chinese goods. Besides Xi, Trump's agenda in Osaka includes sit-downs with Russian President Vladimir Putin, Turkey's um, Erdogan, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Germany's Angela Merkel, and Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. He will be very busy at this summit. A Canadian woman who stayed at a Baha'i uh, Prince Principi resort in the Dominican Republic in 2016 alleges that she fell critically ill after being exposed to a strong chemical odor in her room and that she's battled multiple health problems ever since. Tina Hamill told CNN that the smell in her room at the Grand Rapids Baha'i Principe Punta Cana Resort woke her and her husband from a nap. Hamill is one of several people who have come forward to tell reporters about having fallen ill, sometimes requiring hospitalization, while at a resort in the Dominican Republic. After she and her husband returned home to Ontario, doctors told her that uh, she may have been poisoned by something in the Dominican Republic. Again, that was back in 2016. And Salt Lake City police reportedly served a search warrant Wednesday at a home connected to the disappearance of a missing Utah college student, according to reports. Mackenzie Lueck, 23, was last seen on the 17th of June near a Salt Lake City park after she was dropped off by a Lyft driver. Now, the concern initially was that the Lyft driver was... um, Uh, not legitimate and that he or she might have been responsible for her disappearance. That individual has since been cleared, uh, but did speak of dropping her off at a park in Salt Lake. Now, the University of Utah student was returning from her grandmother's funeral in California. Assistant Chief Tim Doubt said there is a nexus between the home and Lueck's disappearance, but he didn't say if anyone has been arrested. The Salt Lake Tribune reported the Lyft driver who was cleared as a suspect told police he dropped off Lueck at about 3 a.m. at Hatch Park, where another driver was waiting for her. There have been other details that have emerged, but again, not enough to give a clear understanding of what happens next and what police think they may have found. So we'll continue to follow that story as details 
um, are made available. It is important to point out, though, that the uh, Lyft driver was apparently the legitimate Lyft driver. And there are, of course, ways to confirm that the person whose car you're about to enter is, in fact, the legitimate uh, servant of Lyft or uh, Uber Um, And that apparently was not an issue in this case. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments. But uh, in the five o'clock hour, a couple of guests we will hear from Amy Amy Wolf and Alex McFarland, religion and culture expert. We're going to talk about the upcoming election and how we can approach this with wisdom. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, the Supreme Court today ruled that the Trump administration's explanation for asking about citizenship on the 2020 census didn't hold water, sending the matter back to the Commerce Department to try again. But the timing of the ruling, just days before the department has to finalize the questionnaire for the 2020 count, likely means the administration won't be able to ask. And the Supreme Court's conservatives decided Thursday that federal courts do not have a role to play in deciding whether partisan gerrymandering goes too far. The 5-4 decision was written by um, Chief Justice John Roberts and joined by the court's other conservatives. Now, this is a, a position that has been held for decades, certainly more than decades, but not uh, not surprising. They are arguing that it's a state issue. And the Supreme Court on Wednesday refused to overturn a precedent that strengthened the power of government regulators in the closely watched case that could have broad ramifications for federal agencies. The precedent is known as the Our Deference after the 1997 case Our versus Robbins. Since Our, the decision, the Supreme Court has held that courts should defer to agencies' interpretation of their own rules if those rules are ambiguous. Though the top court retained the precedent, it didn't so while imposing limitations. And House Democrats can't accept the bipartisan border crisis compromise bill the Senate passed on Wednesday. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said and will demand changes to limit how long children can be held in some facilities. Law enforcement officials in Nicaragua have arrested four ISIS terror suspects, two from Iraq, two from Egypt, who reportedly entered the country with Costa Rican travel documents as part of a migrant group that U.S. officials say was headed north to the U.S.-Mexico border. And trade and geopolitical tensions and the looming threat of climate change are on the agenda as the presidents of the United States and China and other world leaders gather in Osaka, Japan, for a summit of the group of 20 major economies. North Korean and U.S. officials are holding behind-the-scenes talks to arrange a third summit between President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un on the fate of the North's expanding nuclear arsenal. South Korea's president said four months after a second meeting between the leaders in Vietnam collapsed without any agreement. And according to ABC News, Chris Cox has stepped down from his post as the NRA's chief lobbyist and principal political strategist for the Institute for Legislative Action. The lobbying arm of the NRA, according to Andrew Arul Andum, or something very like that, the NRA's managing director of public affairs. Be sure to, um, uh, to check that out to understand. Uh, Mark Alexander wrote a piece you can Google online warning, uh, cons- uh, offering warnings rather concerning fatricide. Uh, in the NRA. And over a year after the deadly sh- uh, school shooting in Parkland, Florida, two more Broward County Sheriff's deputies have been fired for failing to act to stop the massacre. Deputies 
Uh, Edward Eason and Josh Stambaugh were terminated on Tuesday after an internal investigation of the department's response to the shooting showed they failed to act. Broward County Sheriff Gregory Tony announced. And on this day in oh, 1880, Helen Keller, who lived most of her life without sight or hearing, is born in Tuscumbia, Alabama. And on this day in 1974, President Richard Nixon opens an official visit to the Soviet Union. On this day in 1991, Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American jurist to sit on the nation's highest court, announces his retirement. His departure would lead to the contentious nomination of Clarence Thomas to succeed him. And on this day in 2005, the Supreme Court rules in a pair of 5-4 decisions that displaying the Ten Commandments on government property is constitutionally permissible in some cases, but not in others. And on this day in 2018, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, who was often the deciding vote on abortion, same-sex marriage, gay rights, and other controversial issues, announced his retirement. Kennedy's departure would lead to the nomination and bitter confirmation battle over Brett Kavanaugh. That seems to be the pattern these days. Someone announces their retirement. And if a Republican is in the White House, there is a contentious um, uh, battle over the the Democrat or rather the Republican president's nominee. If uh, Donald Trump receives a second term, there's no doubt we'll witness that again. Well, as I mentioned, the Supreme Court uh, on Thursday blocked for now the Trump administration's plan to include a question on the 2020 census that inquires about a person's citizenship status. Well, why do we have the census? It's to determine how many citizens there are in the country so that uh, congressional districts and how many seats in the House and all of that can be determined without the citizenship question, which, by the way, until the 70s was part of the census. Uh, You just have raw numbers that don't tell you the number of citizens as opposed to those who are just residing in the country. Well, the court said the administration's explanation for adding such a question is insufficient. Send it back to the lower courts for further consideration. But the clock is ticking. While further lower court litigation is possible, it would be very difficult for the administration to get the question on the census in time for the forms to be printed by the government's own self-declared summer deadline. Well, the 5-4 court majority raised concerns about the Trump administration's explanations for their proposal. The ruling, authored by Chief Justice John Roberts, said that the court was presented with an explanation for agency action that is incongruent with what the record reveals about the agency's priorities and decision-making process. There seems to be um, a disconnect. He added that the court cannot ignore the disconnect between the decision made and the explanation given. Supreme Court majority concluded the executive branch had broad authority to decide what goes into the census, saying the survey routinely asks a range of questions on the form beyond the number of people in a household. Roberts wrote that neither respondents nor my colleagues have been able to identify any relevant judicially manageable limits on the secretary's decision to put a core demographic question back on the census. But the opinion said the evidence tells a story that does not match the explanation the Commerce Secretary gave for his decision. And he continued, in the secretary's telling, Commerce was simply acting on a routine data request from another agency. Yet the material before us indicate that Commerce went to great lengths to elicit the request from the Department of Justice or any other willing agency. This case was one of the mostly one of the most closely watched cases of the court's term, Department of Commerce versus New York, and explored exactly what led to Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross deciding to include the question in the first place. 
The ruling comes after a ruling by the U.S. District Court in the Southern District of New York, which said the question was improper. At issue was whether Ross acted within his authority when he added the question. More specifically, there were questions as to whether he violated the Administrative Procedure Act, which set standards for how federal agencies make changes, or the enumeration clause of the Constitution, which says that congressional representatives are apportioned to states based on their populations, numbers, and persons. Opponents of the question feared that by asking people about their citizenship status, immigrants may not want to respond and be counted in the census. Rather, This would result in official population numbers that are lower than they truly are, which in turn could yield less federal funding and fewer congressional seats in the district with high immigration populations. Those districts tend to favor Democrats. So there's always a partisan edge one way or the other, most times both, uh, in these questions being Addressed, And the Supreme Court issued a correct decision on partisan gerrymandering, refusing to find that the practice violates the Constitution. In fact, interestingly enough, in the case, you had one state in which the Democrats had gerrymandered. You had another case, all in the same decision, where the Republicans did some gerrymandering so that it was favorable to each of the political parties. It goes back a couple of hundred years in our nation's history, and it's a matter that the states, the Supreme Court seemed to suggest, ought to resolve. That has been how it's been handled up to this point. Well, the founders gave the task of drawing congressional districts to state legislatures and Congress the authority to override the states via federal law, knowing full well that these are political bodies. There's no definitive way to measure how much gerrymandering has taken place in the given situation and no objective way for the courts to say how much is too much. The issue is, in legal jargon, non-justice. Say this right. Well, it's just difficult to do. I'm going to leave it at that. After celebrating a victory for the Constitution's original meaning, we might want to pause for a second to admit that the practice of rigging the party balance of a state's congressional delegation is nothing to be proud of. When legislatures use their power at one point in time to lock in a structural advantage until the next decade census, deliberately watering down the votes of some of the people they're supposed to be representing, they abuse the process, they undermine the faith in the political system, and the potential for abuse has become worse with time. As sophisticated computer software has allowed gerrymanderers to craft future election results with Um, far more precision than was once the case. You had to kind of guess at it before. Extremely skewed districting can create a situation where, as in North Carolina, the map the Supreme Court considered, a party earns about half of the votes, but about three quarters of the seats. To be sure, America has never had a proportional representation system in which votes and seat chairs always match. And gerrymandering is not the only thing that can create a gap between the two. But when a yawning chasm between votes and power results from blatant gerrymandering, one of the map's authors said it gave Republicans 10 of 13 seats because he didn't think it was possible to draw a map giving them 11. It's hard to blame the losers for being bitter and angry and seeing the process as uh, illegitimate. Again, none of this violates the Constitution, but it is bad and we should stop it. There are ideas for achieving this outcome through implementing them is uh, something of a challenge. The Supreme Court made a good call, but again, the problem isn't solved. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In our 5 o'clock hour, we'll share a story of a mom who decided she was very concerned about teenagers in her community and what she did. Well, it's become a phenomenon all across the world. Also, we'll talk with Alex McFarlane. He's a religion and culture expert, author, radio host on voting with integrity, conscience and conviction in the misinformation age we find ourselves in. All of that coming up in the five o'clock hour. Well, a coalition of moderate Democrats and Republicans approved uh, border funding legislation late today in the House, sending the four point six billion dollar bill to the president's desk for his uh, expected signature when he returns back from the G20 summit. After Speaker Nancy Pelosi backed down from a push to include restrictions on immigration enforcement that could have scuttled the measure. In doing so, she risked a severe backlash from the progressive base calling for these measures. Convinced that so-called guardrails must be imposed to prevent alleged abuses by border officials. But the Speaker agreed to bring the bipartisan Senate-passed bill to a vote without such restrictions, following intense pressure from Republicans and moderates in her own party. The Senate had demonstrated that bipartisan support by approving the bill 84 to 8 a day earlier after rejecting an earlier House version with those so-called guardrails. And while liberal members wanted to put restrictions back in the Senate bill, members were running against a deadline with the 4th of July recess about to begin. There was a lot of pressure that they should not take a recess if this crisis. This emergency had not been addressed and resolved. Well, in explaining her decision, Pelosi cited the urgent need to get funding to help children caught in the humanitarian crisis at the southern border. In order to get resources to the children fastest, we will reluctantly reluctantly pass the Senate bill. As we pass the Senate bill, we will do so with a battle cry as to how we go forward to protect children in a way that truly honors their dignity and worth, she wrote in a letter to her colleagues. The bill passed 305 to 102. The decision is sure to fuel new unrest inside the caucus. Perhaps the most outspoken member of that progressive wing, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, declared, well, heck no to voting on that Senate bill. That's an abdication of power we should refuse to accept. They will keep hurting kids if we do Uh, She tweeted, well, measures sought by the liberal members included those to ensure the health and safety of those in custody, limit the amount of time accompanied minors can spend at an influx shelter to 90 days and reduce funding for ICE by eighty one million dollars. Again, that uh, bill now passed on the president's desk. He is expected to sign it. Uh, when he returns. Well, the first primary debate of the 2020 season saw cracks of daylight emerge in a Democratic field that has has largely played to progressive uh, progressives in the base with the candidates clashing over controversial policies like Medicare for all calls for decriminalization of illegal border crossings while taking ample shots at the president in the process while taking out the left flank of the party on stage Wednesday night in Miami where Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, the highest polling candidate in the first debate uh, batch, with round two coming tonight, the long shot Bill de Blasio, the New York mayor. But were the, um, uh, they were the only candidates to raise their hands when asked who's willing to give up their private health insurance for a government option. Uh, Warren went on to staunchly defend 2020 rival Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan. I'm with Bernie on Medicare for All, and let me tell you why, she said. I spent a big chunk of my life studying why families go broke, and one of the number one reasons is the cost of health care. She said those who challenge the policy are really saying they just won't fight for it. Well, uh, well, it's 
really much more complicated than that. Senator Amy Klobuchar called a single-payer health care system a bold approach, but said she worries about kicking half of Americans off their health insurance in four years, which is exactly what this bill says. The policy was just one wedge on stage Wednesday night. The candidates were largely unified, as expected, in their condemnation of Donald Trump, with Beto O'Rourke calling for impeachment now in the wake of Robert Mueller's report. Interestingly enough, in terms of Internet searches, Senator Amy Klobuchar had the number one um, uh, search uh, efforts uh, um, following that debate. Um, Beto O'Rourke, who was among the handful of candidates who gave some response in Spanish, repeatedly found himself on the receiving end of swipes from rivals on stage. Former House Secretary Julian Castro was among those landing blows as he sought to distinguish himself from a field of on the issue of immigration, perhaps gaining traction by targeting the one-time Democratic darling from Texas. And while Warren stayed center stage by hammering her myriad policy proposals and talking up the class divide, the debate production itself gained outsized attention when technical difficulties marred part of the NBC-hosted program, forcing moderators to cut to commercial breaks to resolve them when candidates couldn't hear questions as other voices were piped in over inadvertently open mics. Um, Trump from Air Force One en route to Japan jeered the network uh, and said that the uh, exchange was boring. Um, Castro said at the uh, debate, I think you should do your homework on this issue, referring to Beto O'Rourke and immigration. Uh, If you did your homework on the issue, you would know that we should repeal this section, referring to Comprehensive reform discussing the heartbreaking photo that emerged this week of a migrant father and toddler daughter who drowned trying to cross the Rio Grande. Castro said it uh, should make everyone angry. Uh, There was an interesting piece explaining uh, the story of that uh, particular family, which might be uh, interesting. And I'm looking to see if I can find where that link is um, to mention it. But I'll try to find it and put it up on the uh, Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. It was a Patriot post, the true story of the two dead migrants telling that family's story and how it came to be that they crossed the Rio Grande rather than um, uh, wait the length of time necessary for them to have their case considered. Anyway, last night's uh, debate, now uh, one in the can, will determine, uh, at least contribute to who will participate in future debates as the bar will be much higher moving forward. Well, NBC, MSNBC embraced Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts in that first debate, um, uh, treating her like the star of the show. She was center stage. She certainly has uh, the most name recognition and support thus far. The debate uh, led off with Warren, who had a huge popular advantage from the start. Um, she was the only Democrat on stage who had mustered double digits in recent polling. Moderators let her dominate the early part of the debate when most people were likely watching. NBC anchor Savannah Guthrie started off uh, sounding like uh, Warren's press secretary. You have uh, many plans, free college, free co- uh, child care, government health care. Uh, Cancellation of student debt, new taxes, new regulations, the breakup of just kind of going through the whole thing before teeing up an economic question. Guthrie even uh, used Warren's plan to break up tech companies as the foundation for a question for Senator Cory Booker. The networks did it again halfway through at about 10 p.m. Eastern time. That's halfway their time. After some embarrassing tech issues uh, that let Warren mull a question for several minutes, the debate went full-on pro-Democrat. NBC brought in uh, big-time liberal MSNBC anchor Rachel Maddow and Meet the Press host Chuck Todd. And there was some criticism as to why Maddow, who's not on the news side but on the opinion side, was allowed to be a part of that. But that's the nature of 
uh, partisan debates. There are always uh, critics who will say that the uh, moderators played a role one way or the other in either giving advantage to individuals, the entire event, um, and and so on. Uh, one other thing, um, I'm not even going to get into that. But anyway, uh, the, the second half of the debate, which might be more interesting just by virtue of who's on that stage. I mentioned them earlier. I won't go over it again. Um, but you have uh, some of the more aggressive candidates who have generated a little more interest in this lineup that begins on NBC tonight at 6 o'clock p.m. our time if you're interested in seeing the second round of these debates. And we're going to talk with uh, Alex McFarland later in the program about engaging in this process and uh, choosing not to simply disengage. It's important that we sit through conversations we may not necessarily enjoy in order to hear what these candidates are saying. It might be a little early for some of us, but I think we do need to make a commitment to take seriously the charge that we have to cast an informed ballot. And that may require sitting through political conversations and debates and all of that uh, to hear what's actually being said and not just the sound bites that are made up after the um, made up uh, for commentary after the events, eliminating um, a lot of what uh, has been said in that broader context. So six o'clock p.m. tonight, NBC round two. Well, almost a week after Senate Republicans walk out in opposition to a cap and trade Energy conservation bill, it looks like the bill is effectively dead. Senate uh, President Peter Courtney admitted on Tuesday morning that his party doesn't have enough votes to pass House Bill 2020. His party doesn't have enough, which would place a statewide cap on uh, carbon emissions. Well, that announcement wasn't enough to bring the GOP senators back to Salem, though. They don't uh, quite believe what's being said. Republicans say they need further assurances from Democrats that the legislation of the bill is at a complete end. Uh, the bill itself has been second um, uh, read and a vote will be uh, will take place. Senate Minority Leader Herman um, Barch Shiger uh, said in a statement released on Tuesday night, Republicans must be assured that the vote or motion will guarantee the bill's complete end. Well, on Wednesday, the Senate convened at 10 a.m. There were no uh, Senate Republicans in attendance. Senate Leader uh, Peter Courtney announced the session uh, was recessed until three. The, the uh, countdown clock is ticking down to Sunday night. When the legislative session ends, if Republicans don't return by then, another 140 bills in limbo would die on the spot. So it's not just the cap and trade bill that needs to be resolved, but other pieces of legislation that they may or may not support. So what happens next? Uh, I guess it's just a waiting game. Signy die. The end of the uh, legislative session is approaching. And the governor did say earlier when the Republicans first um, left the scene Uh, that she was prepared to call a special session. This was related to the climate change bill specifically, but she may be pressed to call a special session uh, for other bills, uh, more than 100 of them that uh, are are still unresolved as well. So we'll continue to follow the story and uh, let you know what happens next before that gavel strikes and signy die, the end of the Oregon legislative session is pronounced. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 45 minutes after 4 o'clock. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In our second hour, we're going to hear from a mom who decided she wanted to do something about what concerned her in her community. Young people who were taking their own lives. We'll tell you what happened next and how it became a worldwide phenomenon. We're also going to talk with Alex McFarland. He is a culture expert, uh, an author, radio host on voting with integrity, conscience, and conviction. 
in a world where misinformation is a problem. All of that coming up in the next hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's a new study that says um, Oregon has the highest rate of sex offenders in the nation. This is a 2019 study by a secure life um, firm reveals that Oregon has the most per capita in all of the 50 states. Um, Oregon has 688 registered sex offenders per 100,000 residents. Arkansas isn't far behind with 536. And by the way, if you are concerned, you can check sex offender registry uh, in your neighborhood. It's not always uh, spot on accurate, but it at least is a beginning if you have concerns about anyone in your uh, neighborhood. But it's somewhat surprising that the numbers for Oregon are as high as they apparently are. Well, Columbia County's 911 agency has learned that um, the hard way that an errant decimal point can make an enormous difference. And we're talking about the 911 system. The Columbia 911 Communications District, which is the agency that fields emergency calls in the 52,000 person county in Columbia, asked voters back in May to approve an operations levy taxing property owners 0.29 cents per $1,000 of assessed property value. 0.29 cents. Well, the agency meant to ask for 29 cents per $1,000. Well, now the agency is stuck with a tax rate that is one one hundredth of what was intended. Nearly 74% of voters approved the levy at the lower rate, just a fraction of a penny. Well, who would disapprove that? Well, the mathematical blunder could mean the district might only be able to legally collect 87 cents a year from the owner of a typical $300,000 home rather than an intended $87 per year from that same owner. What a difference a decimal can make. Well, over the span of the five-year levy, the 911 district estimated it collected $7.92 million at the higher rate. At the lower rate, it would collect about $79,200 over uh, those same five years. Well, the 911 district's executive director said the district plans to ask a judge to allow the district to tax voters at the higher rate to essentially agree with the district that voters thought they were giving a nod to the larger tax collection, not what was actually asked of them in writing. But in a lawsuit filed uh, on Friday in Columbia County's Circuit Court, Scapoose resident uh, Tyler Miller is asking a judge to stop the district from collecting the extra cash. Miller's attorney said the 911 district has repeatedly misused decimal points in its request for money from voters over the past few decades. I mean, it's a pretty easy thing to do. You misplace the decimal point. It's approved by a 74 percent margin. And then later, oops, I did it again. Uh, They've made a bunch of mistakes over the years and no one seems to have noticed. Uh, He went on to say, well, Miller's lawsuit also points out another confusing figure mentioned in the levy's description. That on the one hand, the levy would tax voters at the 0.29 cents rate, but on the other hand, it apparently could charge property owners a flat $29 per year, according to the suit. Well, the uh, Oregonian reached out to um, Miller through his attorney, but Miller didn't return a request for um, for comments, so we don't know uh, the answer to that question. But Fletcher at the 911 uh, district owns up to the decimal point mistake on the May 21st ballot, but says he's the one who made it uh, by typing up the question for the ballot measure, which was 5273, and submitting it on official form for the ballot. 
But a list of other people reviewed his submission, he said, including five members of the district board of directors, the assessors and someone from the Oregon Secretary of State's office. The county clerk read it uh, not once, but twice, Fletcher said. So a lot of people looked at it and no one caught it. Well, voters looked at it, too. And what they uh, approved of was point two nine. Fletcher said he wasn't aware of the gaffe until a few days before the election when the Daily News in Longview discovered it and wrote a story. By then, it was too late. He said he talked to his uh, board president and they were all uh, scratching their heads as to what to do. Well, in trying to persuade a judge to allow the higher tax rate, Fletcher said his uh, district plans to argue that voters had reason to believe they were approving a 29 cents per thousand dollar of property tax value. Among them, the ballot clearly stated the measure was asking that the existing levy be renewed. The existing levy, Fletcher said, tax voters at 29 cent rate, not the point 29 cent. Now, it's entirely possible that voters didn't know what the current rate was and that they relied on what was printed point two nine. Uh, as a reminder of what it was. So I'm not sure that will hold up. We'll see what the judge has to say. This was a renewal, he said. This wasn't anything new. It was a typographical error. Well, if a judge doesn't side with the district, Fletcher said the district will tap a reserve fund to keep it. Uh, it's approximately 15 dispatchers answering emergency calls around the clock. When the next election rolls around, the district can then ask voters to approve the 29 cents rate. That is unless, of course, there's another typo. Meanwhile, Illinois on Tuesday became the 11th state in the U.S. to legalize marijuana for recreational use after Governor J.B. Pritzker signed a bill that permits residents to purchase and possess up to one ounce of cannabis at a time and non-residents up to 15 grams. Well, the move, which fulfills one of his campaign promises, also implements the nation's first comprehensive statewide cannabis marketplace designed by legislators. It also means that nearly 800,000 people with criminal records for purchasing or possessing 30 grams of marijuana or less may have those records expunged. The law provides for cannabis purchases by adults 21 and older at approved dispensaries, which, after they're licensed and established, can start selling on the 1st of January 2020. That means possession remains a crime until then, according to a spokesperson for the Senate uh, Democrats. Pritzker's successful campaign for governor capitalized on growing public sentiment that law enforcement had better things to do than chase pot smokers and that state government could benefit by regulating and taxing the product as it does alcohol and tobacco. He claimed that once established, taxation of marijuana could generate $800 million to a billion dollars a year. He initially estimated that in the budget year that begins uh, in July the 1st, dispensary licensing would generate $170 million. But Senator um, Heather Steens and Representative Kelly Cassidy, both Chicago Democrats, who've been advocating legalization for at least four years, were forced to lower that estimate to about $58 million in the final proposal. Um, one of the lawmakers added that the fully implemented program might generate only $500 million annually within the next five years. So they've generated uh, much lower figures than were originally touted and might have encouraged uh, some residents who might otherwise eschew the idea of legalizing marijuana to think, well, this will be a, um, a pocket of money, a bucket full of money, if you will, that we can draw from and all of the other issues and concerns aside. Hmm. The 11th Oregon, sadly, being among the first. Well, Twitter will start labeling tweets from influential government officials who break its rules, the company said in a blog post published today. 
The new rule responds to a common criticism of Twitter while being careful to avoid allegations of political bias. Good luck with that. Over the last few years, users have questioned why Twitter doesn't take down tweets from President Donald Trump that appear to violate its content policies. And while the blog post doesn't address Trump by name, it says the new rule will apply to verified government officials, representatives or candidates for a government position who have more than 100,000 followers. Well, that narrows it down pretty well. The rule marks a shift in Twitter's response to how to handle tweets from world leaders, namely the president. In January of 2018, the company said in a blog post it was concerned about blocking public access to information from world leaders, even if they seem controversial. They said blocking a world leader from Twitter or removing their controversial tweets rather would hide important information people should be able to see and debate. Twitter wrote at the time it would also be it would also not silence that leader, but it would certainly hamper necessary discussion around their words and actions. We review tweets by leaders within the political context that defines them and enforce our rules accordingly, Twitter said in a 2018 post. Well, in the new policy that was released today, Twitter said that for people who fit its new criteria, it will place a notice over tweets that violate its standards, but it still uh, deems uh, to have Uh, Some public interest value users will have to click through the notice in order to view the original tweet. The notice will include a link to more information uh, and say the Twitter rules about abusive behavior apply to this tweet. However, Twitter will uh, has determined that it may be in the public's interest for the tweet to remain available, according to the blog post. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. All right, we're back. Good afternoon. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And I'm so excited because I have a friend in studio. Amy Wolf is joining me. Now, just to tell you who she is, she's a George Fox University alumni. She is a speaker coach at uh, Distinction Communication, Inc., along with her dad. She also is a TEDx a speaker coach for... Uh, TEDx Portland. Is that the right way to say that? Is it yeah. TEDx Portland? Yes. Uh, anyway, so she's uh, she's been around in the, our community for some time, and I'm just delighted to um, introduce her and to talk to her about a project that she began that initially she thought, no, this may not be a great idea. <laughs> and it's ended up having a significant impact all around the world. So first, let me just say, welcome, Amy. I sure appreciate your coming in today. Oh, thank you for having me. There is an interesting story about how we met many years ago. Yeah. In fact, you mentioned that before our conversation officially began. So I'm sitting at the end of my seat to hear the yes. rest of this one. Well, I think you were speaking at George Fox University when I was a student. So mm-hmm. that must have been 2005-ish. And I remember I heard you speak and I came up to you afterwards. You were so approachable. And I said, I feel like part of my story and how God will use some of my testimony and suffering and life experiences will be becoming an inspirational speaker like you. And all I remember you saying is you weren't quick to brush me off or move on to talk to someone else, but you, I remember you just being so positive, like a, just a cheerleader and awesome. That's going to be awesome. Go for it. And I, I remember that really brief encounter from so long ago. And what's interesting is it's been fulfilled in totally different ways than I thought it would look like, but a really really cool how that dream has been fulfilled and you were one moment cheerleading just cheering me on and oh, I, I thought you should know that <laughs> well, I appreciate knowing that yeah you know it's interesting how God uses just these little brief encounters to encourage um, us 
And uh, I'm grateful to be a small part of your big story. So <laughs> thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thanks for really encouraging appreciate me. It. Well, Amy, you um, were responding to an issue in your community. You live in the Newburgh area. And there had been, as we've seen across the country, um, a number of suicides among young people. And while most of us might have said, oh, this is just tragic, uh, we want to do something about it. We don't quite know what to do. You decided, well, I am going to do something about it. But you weren't convinced, at least initially, that it was the right thing to do. Tell us the start of the story that has taken your inspiration, taken you essentially around the world. Yeah, it started in May 2017. We are part of a church small group of four families, young kids running around screaming. And every week we promise we're going to find a babysitter and we never do. <laughs> We've been together for seven years. Some of us have traveled to Africa together, just a really small group of friends that meet regularly. So one night we're meeting together and one of the friends is a teacher in the Newburgh school district and told us about the suicide rates that he had learned of in our community. And I was just uh, baffled. I don't even remember the number. I just remember the feeling of feeling like I was knocked over. Mm. I am a doer. Uh, if anyone knows me well, I'm just, I, what are we going to do about it? And I thought, what do you do if you're not a, a therapist? What do you do if you're not in the school district? What do you do if you're a young mom who travels often for her job, already volunteers, is already busy? Like, what do you do? And I had had this idea of yard signs for years after reading Bob Goff's book, Love Does. Have yes, you read it? Yes. Yeah. So I read that book. And while I did, I was thinking extravagant love to strangers. What would that look like? And I just had this random idea of ran these yard signs that would say positive things. Well, every couple months, I would think about those signs and just think, that's weird. <laughs> that is just too weird. But in May of 2017, that night at small group, I thought my something I can do is I can just go print those signs finally after so many years of just thinking about it. So I contacted a friend who is a graphic designer. I said, do you have access to cheap signs? They're expensive. And so she did. She designed some signs for us. Jake and I, one Saturday morning with our girls, went out to stake these signs anonymously around Newburgh, particularly in yards around the high school. We knocked on strangers' doors, showed them the sign, no website, no hashtag, no strings attached, not a church, not an agenda, just a family trying to do something. They did not hesitate. And there were some doors I knocked on. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what they're going to respond. And they were so willing to to allow us to put these words in their yards. Uh, the promise was that we would come and collect them after two weeks. It wasn't a forever promise. Yeah, yeah. But I remember two weeks later, we went and picked up signs. And I had one of the families find us on Facebook and message me and say, we didn't realize that when you put the sign out in our yard for other people, that it would become a really important message for our family in our house. Can you come back and put the sign out? <laughs> we need this hope. We need the encouragement that we didn't know we needed at the time. And so, of course, drove back out, stuck back the sign in their yard. Uh, but within a few days, well, a few hours of staking the signs, I started getting seeing activity on Facebook in our community. We have a community page. Where are these signs from? And people wanted signs in their yards. Yeah. In fact, you started with, what, about 20 yeah. signs? And then you started getting calls. We want signs yep. in our yard. We want signs in yeah. our business. And you ended up having to print significantly more yeah. than your initial run. I think in the first week, we had printed 150 signs or ordered them. And then it was a logistical nightmare of, I got a message on Facebook, but then I got a message on Instagram, but then I got an email. And how do I go back to these people? And, and so it... 
quickly we realized if this is going to continue, even just for a week, we got to organize. Mm-hmm. So we made a website, got a bank account. Uh, we we did some things to set us up. And then another month and then another month. And then it starts to get outside of Oregon real quick. And then we realized this is a thing. Like we started a thing. I remember calling a friend, my friend Vanjie. I was panicking. Is this, are we a business? Are we a movement? Are we a nonprofit? What is it? What are we? <laughs> and we decided to just stay a movement for a year and a half. And as Momentum has picked up, uh, we have decided we became a legal 501c3 nonprofit organization. Thanks to Lane Powell, attorney from downtown, did it pro bono for us, some of the work. Because we sell all of our goods at cost. We make no money. We have no margin for overhead. A few pennies here and there to help cover some expenses, which might have to change as we scale. But that's the mission of the organization is that we provide tokens of love and hope through yard signs, wristbands, stickers, car decals, pins, all sorts of things. We provide it at cost so that people can spread hope and love. Let's talk about the message itself, because there are a number of very brief statements that are being made, but are having a significant impact on the hearts of those who either display the signs or the other paraphernalia or are reading them in passing. What are what are you saying? Well, the messages have the signs are all say don't give up on the back and the fronts have different messages like you matter. You are worthy of love. It's not too late. You are not alone one day at a time. And I'm sure you are enough. And then we have with them in Spanish, mm-hmm. uh, one of the signs in Spanish. And it's it's amazing how that positive affirmation gives a glimmer of hope to someone who might be on the edge. Now, you were inspired by the rate of suicides among teenagers Mm -hmm. and even younger Mm -hmm. kids, for that matter. But this has really resonated in the hearts of everybody, teenagers, as well as their parents and grandparents and families and so on. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting is the movement really is so organic. And part of that is we were motivated by response uh, to the suicide rates, but these messages are really for anywhere, anyone experiencing anything that feels discouraging or overwhelming. So I get messages from people um, who have lost a loved one, who are struggling with addiction, who uh, are finding their marriage to be difficult and they're trying to grow some resilience. And these signs don't give up or really significant to them. People who uh, feel there's a gal saying her mom in a nursing home, feeling like no one cares. And they feel kind of invisible to the community and how she decided to make everyone cheer everyone up. She was going to pass out these cards to the residents in the home with her, you know, to all sorts of different walks of life and in all sorts of suffering and all sorts of different struggles. Um, A woman seeing a sign of you are worthy of love in her neighbor's yard. And she was trying to figure out how to leave an abusive relationship. And so the beauty of the messages is that they are so simple that through whatever the lens of suffering we're experiencing, people are claiming the hope for themselves Mm -hmm. and it's beautiful and, and really powerful Now, it's interesting. Many of us have had a moment's inspiration. We'll see something happen. Maybe there's a need that we've identified. And we've thought to ourselves, I'd like to do something about that. And maybe even a creative idea pops in our head. But for most of us, it's a fleeting thought. It's something that never comes to fruition. And yet you, after pondering it for some time, decided, I'm actually going to do something. Now, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about the, the step from, oh, this is probably a really bad idea, to actually calling a graphic designer friend and putting these signs 
in yards that have now spread across the globe. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're talking with Amy Wolf. She's a pretty incredible woman of vision who just decided she wanted to do something, and God gave her a creative idea, and it's made a difference, not only in her community in the Newburgh area, not only in our state, but all across this country and in places around the world she'll probably never visit. We'll be back in a moment, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I am happily continuing my conversation with Amy Wolf. She is a mom. She's a George Fox University alum. She's a speaker coach at Distinction Communication. She does TEDx speaker coaching for TEDx Portland. Uh, she also is the originator of the uh, Lawn Signs of Hope project and Don't Give Up uh, movement, which has uh, really been a surprise to you as yes. much as, uh, as anybody. <laughs> now, just before the break, I was mentioning that for many of us, we have a an idea that might pop in our head, but we never go any further than, oh, that would be kind of interesting. Mm. What do you think made the difference for you in thinking of the possibility of developing this project to actually doing it? Yeah, I think that's a good question. It makes, I don't know the answer to that other than I'm really wired towards action. What are we going to do? What are we going to do about it? When our small group talks about um, different issues and challenges in our culture, my question is, well, let's volunteer. How can we do something? If I were to go back into my life of where that came from, when I was 14, I my brother, Jeremy, passed away. It was a tragic event at a local lake, and I witnessed his drowning. And when I was 14, Jeremy died when he was 18. I remember thinking to myself, well, a few things. Is God there? Is God there and mean, or is God there and sovereign, right? So I had some big things to sort out when I was young. But one of the things that was laid upon my heart was I got to make my life matter. I don't know if I have 18 years or 88 years. And that was so clear to me at such a young age. So I think that's what kind of propels me when I see these needs is what can I do? I just, I got to make myself matter. I can't get too busy. I can't call myself too busy. I mean, I have a capacity and it has been stretched, (laughs) but I think that's part of what motivated me to take action is just this constant drive to, I don't know how much time I have and I've got to make it count. You know, that's interesting. I was 14. My brother was 16 when he drowned. My experience is very similar to yours in that it instilled in me this sense of um, you don't have any idea how long you will be on this earth. So you have to make the most of the time that you have. That's so interesting to me. Now, as a Christian woman, some might question, why isn't there a John 316 in the lower left-hand corner? Why isn't the name of Jesus emblazoned on these signs? And I love the way in the article that John Fortmeyer published in Christian News Northwest, the way you responded to that challenge, because um, I'm sure some of our listeners are wondering why that is not the case. Well, about a month and a half into the movement, I thought, this is really, my daughters are watching this happen. And this is good conversation. Avery was seven at the time. So I said, Avery, what would you put on a sign? And she said, well, I would put God loves you on a sign, which as a mama, I was like, she knows. (laughs) Yes. She knows where her surest hope is. And that's in a God who loves her. Yes, mama win. (laughs) And so I looked at her in her beautiful green eyes. And I said, Avery, I can't do that. And she went, mom, why not? I said, I know. I know. It's so confusing. I think because the movement started to to spread messages of hope to anyone anywhere, that as soon as there became an attachment to some faith 
or a church or a faith message that there would be a majority of people who would then tune out the message, even if it would help them. Oh, it's a faith message. Oh, it must be a church thing. And there's a string attached. Right. And Mm -hmm. that means, you know, it's a recruiting tool or whatever it might be. And I just knew that the intention of the movement was everyone everywhere, no matter what. And so what's been very difficult, because I'm a black and white thinker and I'm a make life matter. And if Mm -hmm. Jesus is the surest hope, you better believe I'm having a hard time not putting it on a yard sign. But it has been confirmed over the last two years that this is the right direction. We've had to make some really difficult decisions on keeping faith out of the movement when we've had some partnership proposals come up. But we really wanted to keep it simple. And it's something I wrestled with up until probably the last year. And then I realized people are, churches are using the signs. Um, People can read through it. I've had a few messages. Are you a believer? (laughs) So some people can see the hope that that shines through them. But yeah, we've made a very conscious decision not to make them faithful. I love what uh, John Fortmeyer wrote, uh, quoting you loosely. The signs are meant to serve as a first step in opening up communication and consideration about basic ideas of love, hope, and acceptance. And then uh, you say that yard sides don't effectively spread Mm -hmm. the gospel. We do. It certainly is a conversation (laughs) starter. It's an opportunity to consider where does that worthiness that the sign suggests I have, where does that come from? And so we don't have to be as explicit in every conversation, you know, in print as one might imagine in order for an individual who truly has a broken and open heart might ultimately find Jesus. So I I appreciated your response to that. Uh, Let's talk about what's happened since this Simple project in Newburgh. I mean, it's a small town in Oregon. It's a beautiful small town. It's a town. beautiful small town. <laughs> in fact, it's one of my favorite towns in Oregon, but that's a whole other subject. This small town in Oregon has somehow spread across the globe. In fact, in the article, uh, it, it hope is spread to all 50 states, yeah. 22 nations, and 10 languages. How yeah. does that happen? That is a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still scratching my head. Well, we don't ship internationally. So anytime they've traveled, it's been in suitcases. So we've had, I had a friend go with a medical team to Nicaragua and said, hey, can we get wristbands in Spanish? So we printed a couple hundred custom wristbands for her. My mom went to Zambia last summer. Hey, can we get a thousand in a small uh, village in the, I think the language was Mame, Mame. And then I would have people traveling through Europe and say, hey, Give me a stack of cards. I'll leave them all over. And then I'm getting pictures of the London Bridge with a don't give up card on it. And in Edinburgh, Scotland, you know, a don't give up card in a restaurant. I'm thinking, what is this? (laughs) And so they've traveled to now 26 countries and often in different languages, people choosing to travel with hope in their back pocket, waiting for encounters waiting for the right place at the right time. Maybe it's setting it down on a public bench. Maybe it's because of an interaction with your waiter, whatever it might be. People are finding that it's an exciting thing to bring with them. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if the heavens can declare the glory of God, then surely a a, a sign, a wristband that declares, um, you know, Imago Dei, the image of God in people in a very creative way can lead them ultimately to the conclusion that there is a God who loves me through encounters with other believers. So it's exciting to consider that. Now, my my understanding is this has also gone viral recently, and you've been getting calls from 
uh, Fox News, All over. Washington Post. Uh, tell us a little bit about yeah. um, how that happened and what you're doing. Yes. A dad in Seattle, a stay-at-home dad in Seattle, reached out to us about a month ago and said, we want to order some signs. We heard about what you're doing through an organization called Mission Increase Foundation. Mm-hmm. And he had met a guy named Kevin that I know well. And he, I said, I heard about your movement. I want to buy some signs. Great. Sent him some signs. He purchased some signs. And then he said, man, I need some more. Okay. And then he emailed me and said, I have a media interview and I don't, do you have any tips? What do you say? Have you done this before? And I said, that's awesome. Gave him some tips. And he got, he got uh, spotlighted on the local news. The national affiliate picked it up. I think it was CNN first, maybe. I don't know. CNN and then Yahoo Lifestyle covered it and that article went viral. And so he called me in a panic. He said, I know you're on a family vacation and trying to unplug, but I need your help. Something's happening. <laughs> and I didn't know what was going on. We we were in Maui last week and I just was not going to work. Uh, but then I got a message from a friend who was helping with the movement in my absence. And she said, we're bombarded. We have hundreds of orders. You're running out of product. I went, what? I opened my emails. Oh no. Oh my gosh. What happened? So it started with his article and then I started getting media requests just simply because when people went through his story, he was so kind to make sure to throw us some credit of it is not ours. Mm-hmm. It is this talk to Amy. And so then I started getting requests for quotes and now for our own highlighting of the movement and the origins and the impact. So it's been a wild I've been home for 48 hours and it's been insane. That's just incredible. So it starts with an idea, kind of a passing idea yep. at that, wanting to do something um, and then thinking, well, that's not a that's not a good idea. No. <laughs> but then pondering it for a season and then ultimately contacting a friend, you make the signs and what was a very simple gesture has now impacted the world and you're on a whirlwind media <laughs> I am. Uh, tour as a, as a result. I think it's an encouragement for the rest of us who might consider that God is nudging them to do something that seems a bit unusual. We can't imagine how that could be useful to the kingdom. We don't know how God might use us. And yet, in these creative, unassuming ways, um, God has given you a platform um, to declare the value that each of us have because of uh, our Creator. And um, what a what a tremendous inspiration and encouragement. Thank you. If I had to encourage people listening, it would be, you know, we're there. There's always going to be people we think are more qualified to help. Mm -hmm. And we're always going to be in a situation where we feel like I'm too broken to help other people or I'm going through my own junk or fill in the blank. And I would just say I am not perfect. And I have my own brokenness. Let's not wait. Let's not wait for someone more qualified, more put together, more resources, more whatever. But when we see a need, that with whatever's our capacity, we try to meet that need and respond in kindness and hope always to other people. And I love your initial response when you learned about the suicide rate among young people. We got to do something. Yeah. And it starts there. There's an open heart and it's a pliable heart and God can use that. He can just drop a little inspiration and it may seem a bit peculiar, a little unusual, unlikely to have much of an impact. And yet your story tells us otherwise. So I want to encourage anyone listening because the truth is all of us are broken. We're just broken in That's different right. ways. So if we wait till we're all whole, then nothing will ever be accomplished. But, um, you know, ask the Lord, what would you have me do? And then don't shrink back from an idea that might be a little bit different than you might imagine and just stand back and look and see what God might do. Well, Amy, I want to thank you for following through with your heart's um, desire to do something. 
and for ministering to so many people in such a simple way. And we will never know, I suppose, this side of heaven, how that inspiration saved lives. And I know you know many stories, and I wish we had more time to talk about them. Uh, but the impact that the, that this uh, campaign is having and has had, what a great inspiration. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm looking forward to this conversation because I have an opportunity to talk with Dr. Alex McFarland. And if you're not familiar with him and his work, you need to be. He is a religion and culture expert, a national talk show host, a speaker, an author of 18 books, creator of the Truth for a New Generation Apologetics Conferences, partnering with Liberty University, host of Exploring the Word on American Family Radio, and much, much more. I had the opportunity to spend a little time with Alex McFarland this past weekend at the uh, conference I was absent for, and so I'm just delighted to have him here on KPDQ. Dr. McFarland, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Georgine. It's such an honor to be on with you, and it was really a privilege to hear you uh, and see you speak at the conference in Minnesota the other day, and uh, yeah, I just want to applaud you for the work you do and just how... Um, how effectively you represent the Lord and you Mm. serve people everywhere, myself included. So God bless you. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. We are entering into, actually, I suppose, been in it for some time, a very sobering season in which we have an election in 2020 that will determine the next president of the United States. And we may have, uh, you know, a way in which we approach these elections that may not be sufficient as we approach this coming a year for a variety of reasons. What do you have to say to believers who want to be faithful with their ballot and the power that that represents to influence the culture? What do you have to say to them about how we need to approach this upcoming election? Well, thanks for that great question. Uh, Number one, and I'm speaking to Christian believers here, and and I know many citizens, just, you know, people that aren't necessarily believers are not going to understand what I'm about to say. But I I said the number one thing we can do is pray. Uh, You know, the Word of God tells us in 2 Timothy that we are to pray for leaders and for those that are in authority, that we may live a peaceable life in all godliness, which really means that Christians are to pray for and seek after a culture most conducive to the spread of the gospel. And so I do think we need to be informed. We need to vote. Uh, Voting is a privilege, and it's Mm -hmm. a part of good Christian citizenship. But I really think more than ever, with so much at play, I mean, our freedoms and the state of the church and the the souls of young people, we really need to be intercessors for our country. You know, this is referred to as the information age, but I think increasingly we are recognizing we live in a misinformation age, that the fact that we are surrounded by lots of information doesn't mean that that information actually reflects truth. Um, polls, for example, may tell us one thing. They may predict an outcome, but they may not reflect reality on the ground. Uh, Google recently was was called on the carpet for uh, saying that they're they're training their algorithm in order to prevent certain kinds of candidates. And they were specifically referring to Donald Trump from succeeding in the 2020 election. How can we be more careful about and manage the information that we are surrounded by so that we are wise in our approach to casting an informed ballot? Well, you know, I think more than ever, every Christian has the responsibility to stay informed, and, and that's going to take work. I mean, we can't just mm-hmm. passively read one one website. 
Uh, and also, we've got to speak in the only language that many of these websites understand. Look, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram that are three juggernauts, they, they derive their income, their business model from web traffic. And, and the 100, think about this, Barna estimates there are 130 million adult Christians. Uh, that's a big demographic. So we need to go to the other platforms. And I, I'm not going to name the names because I don't want to give free PR necessarily, but Twitter has a major competitor right now that's just been launched that conservatives are flocking to because they don't block out pro-life, pro-family, pro-constitution, pro-Trump content. And so Twitter, uh, I was reading this article yesterday, Twitter has taken notice that um, tens of thousands of people every single day are leaving Twitter for this new platform that's basically a pro-conservative type of Twitter. Um, In fact, as I was signing up for this new particular platform, I wasn't even through signing up, and I already had 12 people following me. Hmm. And so we need to stay informed. We need to – let me say it this way, Georgine. As as you – I think you personify this. uh, We need to attend to the life of the mind, and we need to be lifelong learners. We can't be intellectually lazy, but when it comes to our – our online activities, we need to know that Facebook and Twitter does not have us in their hip pocket. They want to censor us? Fair enough. We'll go elsewhere. Well, and I'm so grateful for alternatives uh, because that does speak loudly and clearly to their bottom line, which is their primary concern. I think it's also important for us to recognize that platforms that we have assumed are general. Uh, they are uh, apolitical Uh, that they're providing information, the full range of information and ideas that are out there, that is no longer the case. And we need to be vigilant in really uh, policing the the platforms that we may have used and new platforms that are emerging because it's giving us a false picture of the conversations that are important that are going on out there, some of which are no longer available on some of those platforms. Exactly. And, you know, we, you and I both, we care a lot about young people and, uh, we care about the next generation. Let, let me also encourage people to never forget to read books, just a, a book book, uh, because um, psychologists have shown that, you know, when you're handling a book physically, organically, you're turning the pages, listen to this, and I know we, we get tons of content off of a screen. I know that. But when you read a book, you have better recall. Uh, the information that you're ingesting, uh, you have better assimilation with your existing base of knowledge. And I want to encourage young people to never forget that medium that we know is not being policed, and that's the printed page. And and I, I know look, with millennials and younger and Gen Zers, um, most of what they're reading is online. Mm-hmm. But let's, as moms and dads, let's also train our kids The number one book to read is obviously the Word of God, to read the Bible. But let's also read the great books, the the, the organic printed page books that we know are not being censored. Let me ask you one more question about the first thing you suggested believers do. And this should be almost reflexive for us, that we ought to be praying men and women in general. And if we know the scriptures, we ought to be praying for those in authority. But let me ask you how we should pray. Now, sometimes Christians are criticized for praying that their team will win. How do we approach the throne of grace that invites us 
uh, to come there and, and offer up our petitions? How should we pray as we anticipate big decisions that are going to be made uh, that we're going to participate in in this upcoming 2020 presidential election and all the uh, the tickets beneath that uh, that headline? Oh, great question. Great question. You know, very famously, Abraham Lincoln, somebody asked, you know, uh, is God on our side? And he said, well, let's take care to make sure that we're on the Lord's side. And uh, look, look, I, I know that we we are dealing with eternal things far beyond just the temporal issues, as important as they may be. The number one thing, I think of Matthew six thirty three, Georgina, um, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. So I think we need to pray, number one, for the kingdom of Christ to prevail, and the, the things that are godly that honor the Lord and are in line with his purposes and will contribute to the salvation of people. You know, in John 15 and 16, Jesus talked about whenever we pray according to his word and his will, in his name, it would be done. So his word, his will, his name, um, we need to understand that uh, our our petitions to God are not about a a good economy necessarily and self-aggrandizement and the things that will make me have a posh, comfortable life Although God has blessed America with a, a standard of living, the rest of the world is envious of generally. But the main thing is that we in this world, if you're a believer, uh, en route to heaven, all of our time here in this world is on God's turf. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, well, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said we have one thing to do, and that is the saving of souls. So I think we need to pray that we can, uh, be a godly nation, our our constitution and our freedoms will remain intact so that first and fundamentally we can uh, win the loss, build Christian homes, and, and ever be about Christ's great commission. What you're talking about is mature Christian uh, walk in which um, I, I put my interests behind those of the king. We are ambassadors of Christ, so we we pray according to his dispatches, if you will, and that requires a maturity on our part. And you don't see much of that in politics. So we have the the opportunity to set an example um, along the way of, of walking in obedience in this area. Indeed, indeed. You know, um, since I had the privilege of spending time with you and, and your husband last weekend at the conference, and what a what a joy it was. Yes. Uh, again, uh, you you just were such an incredible speaker from the stage and everything. But um, I've been to North Carolina, Ohio, and am now in Virginia. And we're out there trying to uh, do our Truth for New Generation apologetics events to equip young people. And it's such a blessing. I want to say this to every parent, pastor, youth pastor, everybody. The young people of this nation are spiritually hungry. Uh, We hear a lot of negative news, but there are a lot of brilliant young people, and I mean, yeah, they're a product of the 21st century in in a lot of ways, the music, the dress, the, you know, what they look at for entertainment, but there, I meet young people everywhere, all over this nation, that they want to know who the Lord is. They want to know how to grow in their faith in Jesus. They want to know how to defend their faith, and they want to know what can we do to have the best America possible. And so I want to encourage people. I also want to put a pitch out there. Maybe we'll bring a Truth for a New Generation 
to the cities of some of your listeners. Um, we'll bring in great speakers and we'll do a big event to unify the community around the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we have hope, and, and what we don't do is throw in the towel and let just any worldview scoop up the hearts and lives of millions of young people. We've got to shine the light of Jesus Christ and tell people, number one, how to be saved, but then how to grow and serve and live a life for Jesus that will truly count for eternity. Well, I so appreciate that um, admonition and that encouragement against the Truth for a New Generation conference. I would love to see that here in the Pacific Northwest. Maybe you and I need to have a further conversation about that. What's the best way for listeners who would like to follow up uh, to communicate with you and talk about the possibility of having the conference here uh, or about some of the other projects that you're working on? Well, just um, we, we've got two websites. One is my name, alexmcfarland.com, just A-L-E-X-M-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-D, alexmcfarland.com. And the other is Truth for a New Generation, Truth, F-O-R, Truth for a New Generation. And then people can email me, uh, just alex at alexmcfarland.com. It'll come straight to me, uh, alex at alexmcfarland.com. And uh, just, hey, uh, we're, we're safe sinners excited about Jesus. And we're here to serve God and country. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I look forward to our next conversation. Indeed. God bless you, my God friend. God bless you, too. Again, Dr. Alex McFarland, really an incredible apologist. And if you know what apologetics is, it's not apologizing for the faith, but uh, giving a defense for the hope that we have within us. He's preached in more than 1,500 churches, spoken in hundreds of locations across North America and internationally. He's the founder of the National Apologetics Conference. We mentioned Truth for a New Generation or uh, he's uh, been featured at conferences at the Billy Graham School of Evangelism, Focus on the Families, Big Dig, California Spirit West, sharing the platform with the late Chuck Colson, Josh McDowell, and many, many others. Uh, just a great resource for families um, who are concerned about uh, young people. So anyway, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. We were talking just a moment ago with Alex McFarland about information, misinformation, sometimes gaining access to needed information is the challenge. And I wanted to share with you what happened in State College, Pennsylvania, where parents there of elementary school students in that school district have finally received access to review sex education curriculum after their efforts from Liberty Council and the Pennsylvania uh, Family Institute's Independence Law Center on their behalf. Well, Liberty Council was contacted by these parents. Uh, They'd made multiple requests to the school officials to review the entire human growth and development sex education curriculum. That included all slides, presentations, multimedia presentations, sources, textbooks, and other supplemental materials that would include planned web links and videos that were intended Uh, in the educational program. Well, the school district was violating these parents' rights by presenting only some of those materials. And that's the same challenge we have in this information age, finding a source that will present all uh, materials. Well, Liberty Council sent a demand letter and provided parents with a model uh, parental non-consent form to uh, to specify in writing to administrators the sex ed material and resources from which they desire their children exempted. 
Well, Pennsylvania law recognizes that uh, parents have the right to have their children excused from specific instruction that conflicts with their religious beliefs upon receipt by the school's um, uh, entity of a written request from the parents or guardians. Well, parents can't meaningfully exercise that right without notice and opportunity to inspect all the curriculum materials, not just summaries or censored slide presentations. This was particularly important where the material discusses some matters of sexuality. Well, parents had repeatedly sought to view the material in the face of the administrative stonewall. One parent wrote, we've asked to see the curriculum and were denied. We went to the parent meeting and were denied. We received the email from one administrator, which was a sham. We continued to ask for the curriculum and were ignored. We reached out to Liberty Council and you intervened on June 10th, 40 days after our initial request and long after the students in the district were exposed to the material, we saw what had been represented as the curriculum. Liberty Council's founder and chairman, Matt Staver, said, We commend the State College Area School District for recognizing parents' rights and giving them access to all sex education curriculum. Parents do have the right to know the exact nature of all curriculum, especially um, any special interest propaganda to which their children may be subjected when at school. Well, they uh, uh, were able to do that and were very gracious in their response to the uh, school district officials and administrators after a a period of time in which the parents were stonewalled. But um, um, taking the high ground, they were gracious in thanking them for giving parents that access. If you are similarly looking for information in its entirety, there are ways to go about that. Liberty Council, Alliance Defending Freedom, they're organizations that sadly uh, you may need to call upon in order to avail yourself of all of the resource that um, these uh, these young people are being exposed to. But uh, kudos to uh, these parents in Pennsylvania for persisting, to Liberty Council and to the Pennsylvania Family Institute's Independence Law Center for pressing and ultimately for this, the administrators of the school district for providing what these parents had long requested and are, by way, by the way, legally entitled to. So if you have a challenge, this is a, uh, perhaps an encouragement to continue and to seek help if necessary. Well, tomorrow on the program, it's Friday, and we are going to do what we tend to do on Fridays, and that is take a look at the lighter side of the news. And I am so looking forward to doing just that, particularly after round two of the uh, Democrat to hopefuls Debate tonight at 6 o'clock p.m. We'll talk a little bit about that in the first part of the program and some other headline news, but we will uh, definitely make the shift to the lighter side of the news. We've got some fun things coming up for that. So I hope you'll join us. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your wonderful day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.